Well, please turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to look in particular at verses 12 through 15 this evening. Now, last time we considered together how the eschatological, the end times uh, reality and hope with which we live, that, that should color our life as Christians and as a church. And we saw that in, in a fairly general way last time. But now, as we come to the remainder of this chapter, the Lord puts it in very clear and concrete terms. How our looking forward to that which is to come, how our living as those who are in the light, as those who are of the day, makes a real difference in the way we live, not just in the community, but even within the family of God. So we're going to look at verses 12 through 15, but I'd like to begin reading at the start of the chapter so that we can see that context once more. Paul writes, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Therefore, comfort each other. And edify one another, just as also you are doing. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Comfort the faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. Be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, the church is an exceedingly unique organism. It has members and a structure, and yet it is decidedly different from the many social clubs that our society knows. Its leaders have authority, but it's authority that they're called to use as servants to those placed under them. The members are all individuals, and yet they're called to live and act as a united body, serving one head. The church is to be set apart from the world, and yet we're not permitted To live apart from the world. We're called to to be set apart even as we live among the world. In countless ways, the church is unique from every other institution, organism, or organization. And being a member of such a body takes some getting used to. Especially for those who are new to the faith. There needs to be adjustment and instruction 
Some of the attitudes and ideas of the world need to be disposed of and new ideas and understandings need to be adopted. And that's why Paul and his friends wrote this section of 1 Thessalonians 5. The Christians of Thessalonica, you might recall, were newcomers to the faith, spiritually immature in many ways. They're still learning what it means to be the church, what it should look like, how they should act, how they should relate to one another. So in this passage, Paul and Silas and Timothy explain that Christ calls His church to cultivate righteous relationships. That's their focus in verses 12 through 15. It's the heart of the message. An explanation of the calling the church has to cultivate righteous relationships. And it's good for us as a long-established church to take the time to ponder that instruction. Because we live in the midst of a world that knows nothing of truly righteous relationships. And it's easy to be influenced by the world's folly. I mean, we live among unbelievers every day, throughout the week, throughout our lives. It requires intentional and constant effort to put off the world's example and to take up the kind of relationships to which we have been called. So consider with me for a few moments this evening, brothers and sisters, the unique nature of the body and the unique calling of the body of Christ to cultivate righteous relationships. Now, as we do that, I should point out that this section of of Scripture is exceedingly unique, even in its structure. The way Paul wrote it, it breaks into, although we have three Uh, sections in the sermon, it really breaks into two parts. Verses 12 and 13, verses 14 and 15. They're written in a very parallel way, each starting with an almost identical phrase expressing a desire for the church. The middle section comprising a series of parallel phrases of their own, and then ending with an outright command. And that parallelism shows that they're dealing with parallel purposes. Both of these sections deal with relationships, but they deal with Different relationships. The first section, verses 12 and 13, deal with the church's relationship to its own leaders. And that's what we deal with, first of all. Our calling to cultivate righteous relationships in honoring our leaders. The leaders are described in verse 12 through three phrases, each one speaking of their calling and the character that they're to bear. First, Paul identifies them as those who labor among you. They labor. It's not an honorary post, being an elder, being a deacon, being a minister. If you've not served in one of those offices, you would have a hard time understanding how many hours they put into it, how much time a good elder or deacon spends countless hours visiting with God's people and preparing to visit God's people and praying because of their visits to God's people. They recognize how weak they are, but they also recognize how needy the church is. They're shepherds, especially the elders. They're shepherds, and shepherds, if they're to care for the sheep, they have to be among them. They have to know them. Intimately, And the only way you can know them is if you're, you're with them out in the field or, in this case, in their homes. You're meeting them for coffee or 
calling them on the telephone. You're checking up on them. You're urging, encouraging. We'll talk about some of the things that they do. But, but it's hard labor. Being a deacon, finding the ways in which the church can serve, the gifts that need to be used and how they can be used responsibly and, and the needs that they can take away from the elders having to deal with so they can focus on the Word and on prayer. That's hard work. These leaders who labor among you, they are also over you in the Lord, Paul says. They exercise oversight. They have real authority. But it's not authority that's meant to build them up and make them feel good. It's authority that's intended to serve, like we saw in Ephesians 4. It's authority that's intended to build and strengthen and grow and unify the church. It's an authority given for your sake. And that's why they admonish you, Paul says. That word admonish, it literally means put into mind. It involves pointing out our sins and calling us to repentance, but... But it also has a sense of tenderness. It's the instruction of a loving father. Not just disciplining, but discipling his children. These are men who admonish you, not because they're on a power trip, not because they just want to see what they can order you to do, but because they want you to become the best follower of Christ that you can be. These are the leaders to whom the church must relate. Men who live among the the flocks, struggling and laboring for their sake. They're over you, given authority by Christ. And that authority leads them to admonish, not out of power, not out of harshness, but out of love. Out of love for your well-being and the Lord's glory. Paul says, recognize these leaders. The word is aptly rendered there. It really means to know, but in a way that leads us to respect. You see, we can't really respect our leaders unless we know who they are and what they do and what they're called to do. So often when the church fails to respect its office bearers, it's because we forget who and what they are. We start getting all indignant. Who is that elder to tell me what I can and can't do on the Lord's Day? How dare that person come into my house and question the way I act, the way I do, what I'm... We get all indignant. We get upset. And we forget that God set that person over me for my good. That when they speak to me out of God's Word, not just because they're meddling, not just because they're nosy, but because they've seen something where we need to be admonished. Or maybe, and this happens more often than most folks know, maybe they spoke something offensive to you. And they didn't even know it was going to be offensive to you. That was just God providentially working through your elder or through your minister or through your deacon. And you get all offended, but you forget that they're exercising the authority that God has given to admonish you for your good out of love. If you don't discipline a child, he's a holy terror. Why? Because he's naturally sinful. And he's been given parents to restrain that sin and to teach him that disobedience hurts. Not just disobedience to them, but disobedience to God. And that's why God has put office bearers over us. So that we can learn that disobedience hurts and that righteousness is blessed. Faith is blessed. Loving and serving the Lord our God is blessed. When we recognize them, we begin to respect them and love them. 
And so in verse 13, he says that we should esteem them very highly in love. Again, he's focusing here on our inner life, the way we think, the way we regard those over us. We're to regard them as highly as possible. That's an extremely rare adverb that's used here. That very highly, we can't even express it properly in English. It's talking about honoring them in the highest possible manner. Why? Because we want to give them a power trip? Because we want to make them feel good? No, because they're doing the work that God has committed to them. And we're thankful that God is doing that work among us. Sometimes that's hard. Sometimes we don't agree with our, the elder who's over us. Or we don't think that maybe the deacons are doing things the way they ought to do. Or maybe that minister just, he went from preaching to meddling. But when we remember that they're established by God, then even though we know they're imperfect, and they are, we all are. And even though they sometimes don't say things maybe the way they should or the way we would like them to, We recognize that God uses these imperfect servants for His perfect purposes. And we esteem them highly in love for the sake of the work that God has entrusted to them. Only as we do this can the church be at peace among yourselves. You see, those improper attitudes that question everything that the elders do that criticizes the deacons, that can't find a good word to say about the minister, those kinds of attitudes, that fosters strife. It fosters division. That's what, when you have that, that's when you see the little groups over here whispering and the little groups over there whispering and this group won't talk to that group. And why? Because they're allowing Satan to foster division in their midst by picking at all of the the perceived flaws, many of which probably aren't. But when we stop looking at the individual's faults and failures and shortcomings, we all have them. Hey, look in the mirror first. You'll find plenty to keep you occupied, right? We all will. But when we recognize what they're called to do and we esteem them highly in love for the sake of the work God has given them to do, well, suddenly they become effective. And remember what we saw in Ephesians 4. God gave them for the equipping of the church for the ministry. So if we tear them down and we ignore them, then we're not being equipped for ministry and the church is sure to not be at peace. But if we honor them very highly in love for the sake of their work, then their work will become effective in us. And we will be knit together in love and we will begin doing the work of ministry to which we're called. Apart from which, we're useless. As useless as a brilliantly bright light that's placed under a bushel where nobody can see a ray of it. This calling to honor our leaders, brothers and sisters, it is crucial instruction for the church. Especially as Americans, and I'm as patriotic as it can get, but we can be an independent, self-centered lot. We love to criticize. We love to second guess. We love to think we can do it all better. That's just us as a culture. But God calls us as a church to something far better. Yes, our leaders are just men. Sometimes they they say things that are rash or unwise. They're sinful. They're limited. Sometimes they have to go back on their own decisions. Absolutely. But God amazingly, wonderfully uses these men whom He has set among you. To shepherd you as elders. 
to teach you as ministers and to guide you into service as deacons. Remember, recognize these elders and honor them exceedingly highly in love for the sake of their work. That means forgive their sins. Be thankful for their care. Pray for their wisdom. And be receptive of God's work through them. Having said that, there's a danger when we emphasize the importance of the work of the office bearers. We see, I hope, and we should see, the value of the elders, the deacons, the ministers among us. But we're tempted then to put all the weight on them. Say all the flaws of the church, all the failures of the church, all the things the church should be doing, but isn't that's all on them. Wish I was in charge. But we saw last week, didn't we? We all are called to the work of ministry. We all are to be our brother's keeper. And so in verse 14, we're given a set of four commands. And together these commands boil down to this, that you are called to help your Christian brother. So he calls us to cultivate righteous relationships not only by honoring our elders, but by helping our brothers. Again, this is expressed in four commands. First, we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. It's fascinating that the word there for warn is the same word that was used above for the leaders of the church, admonish. I don't know why it's rendered differently here, but it's the same word, the same verb. It has the sense of reproving, pointing out their flaws, calling them to something better, but doing it tenderly, in love. We are to warn tenderly those who are unruly. They're undisciplined. They're disorderly. They're they're not ready to serve, to minister. And that's a problem because the church is called to minister. The church is called to serve. The church is called to maturity. And these are folks that aren't striving for maturity. They're, They're content to sit there as spiritual children. Not growing in their understanding of the Word, not growing in their relationship with the Lord, not seeking ways to use their gifts in productive manners. We're to warn them, to admonish them, that they are not fulfilling their purpose, and that they, out of love for God, out of gratitude for Christ, they need to be willing to use their gifts, they need to be willing to learn, to grow, to mature. We're to warn the unruly and to comfort the faint-hearted. Now, the faint-hearted, these aren't that unruly. That's, that's more of a rebelliousness, right? That's the person who is the spiritual equivalent of the 30-something-year-old young man, young man, who likes to play video games all day and dress like a teenager and not have any responsibility. That's the unruly person, spiritually speaking. The faint-hearted is the one who's afraid just doesn't think he's strong enough, doesn't think he's talented enough or gifted enough or able enough. They're called to testify to the world about what they believe, but they're terrified somebody will ask them about the hope that's within them because they're certain they're going to bungle it all up. We don't warn them. They're already broken down. Instead, we comfort them. These folks are bound by weakness. Rather than warning, they need strengthening. They need upbuilding. 
How do we do that? We come alongside of them. We encourage them. We study the Bible with them. We pray with them. We pray for them. And we show them by our example as they live alongside of us what it looks like. In a similar manner, we're to uphold the weak. I believe this speaks of spiritual weakness. These folks, they, they fight against temptation and they lose. They lack assurance. They want to have a strong and compelling witness, but they don't live strong and compelling lives. And these are the church that the folks of the church need to support and uphold. Because they're broken. A bone that's broken, it needs a cast or a splint, something solid to come alongside of it and hold it until it grows strong. And one who in the church is weak, they keep falling into that same sin. Maybe it's drunkenness. Maybe it's lust and pornography. Maybe it's gambling. Maybe it's lying. They keep stumbling back into that same pit, that cesspool. They need us to come alongside of them and strengthen them and hold them firm and hold them accountable out of love. So that they can learn to grow strong. So that they can learn daily to trust in the Lord. And then we're to be patient with all. That's probably the hardest one of all, isn't it? When new Christians enter the church, we're so excited that they come in. Oh, wow. They, they, they're learning to love the Lord. It's all new to them. They're so excited. We're grateful that they're here. But then a few months go by and they're still doing dumb things. And they're still saying Foolish things. And we start thinking, well, when are you going to grow up spiritually? Not remembering that it's taken us 30, 40, 50 years to get to where we are and we still sin. We need to be patient with them even as God is patient with us. Because only if we're patient with them will we in love warn those who are unruly. And in love comfort the faint-hearted. And in love uphold the weak Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. That's my calling as your pastor. I don't always do it well, but I've striven to do it. That's the calling of these elders among us. Every one of them. As they examine and evaluate the sheep, this is their calling to see how they can apply this command. But it's also the calling that God has laid on Ken and Sai. It's also the calling that God has laid on Dave and Becky and Drew and Heidi. It's the calling that God has laid on Jesse and our other young children but also on our oldest saints. See, there's not a member of this church that isn't called to these four commands. Because we're one. We're one body. We have one witness, one faith, one baptism, one Lord and Savior who is over all and in all and through all. We are one. And if our witness and our service to the Lord is to be strong, then we need to be building one another up with patience, with love, with steadfastness. We can't do it on our own, but, but by God's power, as we're praying for the church, as we're asking for His help, He will enable us to do it. 
so if you're resolved to do this, then, then folks, this is a calling to work on your relationships within the church. Because you can't warn those who are unruly if you don't know how they're unruly or why they're unruly. You see that young man who, ah, he just seems like he's a little off, like he's not really here when he's at church. The lips never move. The head's always kind of bowed down. He's out the door as soon as it ends. But what's really going on with him? Is he rebellious or is he really struggling with some hurt that he's experienced? Maybe he's depressed. Maybe he's struggling in school. Maybe he just needs someone to make him feel accepted. You won't know until you invite him to go out for coffee and you spend some time getting to know him. What about that older person that is always out the door as soon as church ends? What's going on with them? Might be that they're just hard-hearted. Or it might be that there's a loved one that they feel the need to get to right away. Or it might be that they're terribly embarrassed about some of the struggles they're having and they're afraid somebody's going to find out about it. You won't know until you build a relationship. What about our kids? What are their gifts? What are their dreams? What are their hopes? How do they understand the gospel? What is God going to do with them in the future? And how are they going to be molded and shaped to that end? Well, you won't know until you get to know those kids. You see, if we're to do this, then we need to be in each other's homes. We need to be understanding who one another is and what we're like so that when we see something amiss, we'll actually recognize that it is amiss. And we'll have the relationship that will allow us not to speak as strangers, because that doesn't help, does it? If we're to actually warn those who are unruly and expect the unruly to hear us, if we're to comfort the faint-hearted and expect that to strengthen that faint-hearted person, if we're to, to uphold the weak in a way that the weak will allow us to uphold them, well, we have to have a pre-existing relationship with them. They have to know that we love them, don't they? But if we're spending time in each other's homes, if we're building those relationships, if we're studying the Bible together, if we're simply praying for each other every day, those relationships are going to grow and we're going to be able to do this. And not only that, but we're going to be so much more patient because we love them. And that brings us to our last verse, a command that's both negative and positive. Now, verse 15 is very closely related to verse 14 in the nature of the instruction it speaks, but it broadens the scope because it calls us to love our neighbors. We're not only to to cultivate relationships by honoring our leaders and helping our brothers, but also by loving our neighbors. First, Paul writes negatively. He says, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. This is a fascinating text. I know our time is almost up, but you've got to look at that command because it talks about revenge and revenge is one of the easiest and most pernicious sins to which we're tempted we desire justice inherently we desire to right that which is wrong or right what has been done wrong the problem is we want to put ourselves on the throne we want to be the judge the jury the executioner And that's wrong for two reasons. For the first, it's wrong because of pride. It's sinful because of pride. I was hurt, now I want payback. It's all about me, whether I get what's coming to me. 
But it has no concern for others, no love for others. It's all about my pride. And also, it's about unbelief. Revenge is an act of unbelief because God has said He is the great judge. He will hold everyone accountable. When we insist on getting our own revenge, saying the words that we want them to hear, making sure that they pay for what they've done, we're saying, I don't trust God to do it. I'm going to do it for Him. The apostle says, no. See that no one renders evil for evil. It's sinful. That revenge because of pride and unbelief. But notice this. The church as a whole is commanded to prevent revenge by any. I am called to keep you from seeking revenge. And you are called to seek to prevent me from seeking revenge. We're responsible for each other. We're each our brother's keeper. And it doesn't matter who committed the offense, whether it was another Christian who said something foolish that offended you, or whether it was some unbeliever who did you wrong. It's just as sinful to take revenge on an unbeliever as on a brother or sister in Christ. In fact, Paul shows us here that the nature of the offense doesn't matter. Whether it's something big or something small, whether it creates sadness or pain or monetary loss, regardless of its size or importance, no wrong, no sin, no evil committed against us justifies a Christian seeking vengeance. Romans 12. Romans 12 says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay says the Lord. We need to trust the Lord to get vengeance for us, to bring the justice that we deserve. So instead of that, he says, always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Notice that command, pursue. Don't just hope for what is good. Don't just expect what is good we're to be like a bounty hunter seeking a fugitive pursue that which is good always not just when the offense was light and you can live with it but even when the offense was horrible and you don't know how you can face that person always pursue what is good jesus said in matthew 5 in the sermon on the mount you've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. We don't like that one so much, do we? But listen to what he says. He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. That's the example we're to follow. That's the standard we're to uphold. Now look carefully at that command in verse 15. When your brother here in the church offends you, and it happens, we're sinful, we're going to offend each other, what should you do? Build on that relationship that you should have been building and go and tell him of your offense between the two of you. And if he repents, if he expresses sorrow, then forgive him. Which means, say he's forgiven, and then refuse to bring it up again in your heart, or in your words, or in the way you relate to him. Because that's what forgiveness is. It's not, you're forgiven, now let me go tell everybody what you did. It's not, you're forgiven, now I'm going to dwell on it in my heart and be bitter and not have a relationship with you. It's what God has done for us, right? Do away with it. We can only do that by God's grace, but by God's grace we can do it. 
But what if the sin was somebody outside the church, somebody beyond? Do the same thing. And if they express remorse, then forgive them in the same way. But what if they don't express remorse? Then love them and pray for them. And trust God to bring about what is just. And as for you, do everything you can to live at peace with that person. Romans 12, verse 18. Pursue what is good. Pursue reconciliation and forgiveness. Show love and compassion and the patience of Christ Himself. Folks, this is hard. The world says you need to take care of number one. You need to take care of you. And your heart says, I need to assert myself or they'll all walk all over me. The world in your heart want you to act as though you are God. But Christ says always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. We can only do that if we're working together, if we're living together, if we're developing those relationships together, if we're showing one another what that kind of forgiveness is and looks like. But if we do, oh, the world will think we're so weird. Why would you forgive him? Why would you not take that opportunity to to get back at her? And then we have that glorious opportunity to tell them about what Christ did for us. When he could have judged us, when he could have sent us to hell, he went for us on the cross. He allowed himself to be broken and battered and poured out so that we could be whole and restored and new. And our words will mean something because they saw us. Brothers and sisters, this is our calling. Not just today. In the future. Down the road. As we go on living together. We are called to cultivate righteous relationships. And it starts with you. Praying. Asking for God to teach you to love one another. And to begin honoring your leaders and helping your brothers and loving your neighbors. May God hear that prayer and answer it with abundance. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, we hear your call. And we're so overwhelmed by it. We're not sure we can. Maybe not sure we want to. But then we remember what You did for us in Jesus and how You used Him to restore us to Yourself. And we, we know we must. But we also know that we desperately need Your help, Your guidance, Your power. So Lord, work within us and through us and among us so that more and more we might cultivate the righteous relationships to which we've been called. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.